Hey there, and welcome to Church of the Beloved's weekly sermon podcast. My name is Kevin Zhou, and I serve on staff as the production manager here at COTV. This week's message is brought to us by Elder Michael Morgan. He's preaching from Exodus chapter 20, verse 13. As I said, my name is Michael. I serve as an elder here at Church of the Beloved, and today I have the joy of preaching to you on Exodus 20:13. You shall not murder, as we have on the screen. So as you can see, there's really two major components to this. There's the, there's the not, and then there's the murder. So just <laughs> don't do it. Uh, and I guess rise for the benediction. I don't know what I'm going to say about this one. Um, now, in, in fact, I have prepared something that I'm excited to share with you all, but, but before we do so, let's, let's pray. Father God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. Amen. Okay, so here's the angle I, I want to take on, on murder today. Um, it's a passage that Derek brought up last week. Uh, it's from Matthew 5, verses 21 to 22. So this is, this is Christ in the Sermon on the Mount kind of elaborating on you ought not murder. You've heard that it was said to those of ancient times, you shall not murder, and whoever murders shall be liable to judgment. But I say to you that if you're angry with a brother or sister, you'll be liable to judgment. And if you insult a brother or sister, you'll be liable to the council. But if you say you fool, you'll be liable to the hell of fire. So here we have a discussion that murder is in some way connected with anger. Christ is saying, um, you know, before you've heard it said, this was the law, but now I'm saying to you, don't hold anger in your heart against a brother or sister. And I think this is a question for us as to how to understand exactly the relationship between murder and anger. And it's kind of a more particular form of the question of how to understand the law's relationship to Christ. What exactly is going on in the Sermon on the Mount when Christ is saying, you know, for instance, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery, but now I say to you, don't even have lust in your heart. And I think for me, and I think for a lot of us, I've heard a variety of accounts of exactly how to understand that relationship between Christ and the law. And they're all kind of swirling around in my head in ways that were like kind of vague and maybe incoherent at times. Um, but I thought I understood it quite well. Up and until uh, I was in an Old Testament class when I was an undergraduate, and our professor posed us this question. Like, how do we understand Christ's relationship to the law? How do we understand this stuff in the Sermon on the Mount in relationship to the Ten Commandments? And I, eager 18-year-old, was pretty willing to raise my hand, and I shot it up, and my professor calls on me, and I said, here's, here's how we understand it. Christ is replacing the law with a higher law. It's a harder law. Before it was don't murder, now it's don't even be angry. Uh, and my professor took a breath, looked me dead in the eye, and said, that's completely wrong. And I was like, ah. Oh. <laughs> but now I know. Uh, and she did explain it using this verse, right? So let's take a look at Matthew 5, verses 17 to 20. Don't think... I've come to abolish the law. All right, so that one's out. Don't think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one letter, not one stroke of a letter will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So Christ is pretty clear here. He's not abolishing the law. It's not the case that the law is no longer valid, but he's, he's doing something else. He's saying that he's fulfilling the law. 
So my preferred metaphor is, is something like this for thinking about the relationship between the law and the Christ. It's like uh, a sketch, right? Imagine a sketch of a painting with like pencil that you're eventually going to fill out with color and content. It's not that murder is no longer valid. In fact, it did actually chart the relevant outline, but it wasn't complete. And Christ brings that law to its fruition. So do not murder is like that sketch. It still holds, do not murder. But what the spirit of the law is, which is what Christ is revealing, is not to hold anger into your, in your heart against your brother or sister. And on one hand, that starts to like make sense between uh, the law and Christ. But on the other hand, Christ saying that you ought not hold anger against your brother or sister is kind of confusing in its own right, because it seems like there's a few times in Scripture where Christ and the Father get angry, and like it's presented as a good thing. So how exactly are we supposed to understand this, don't be angry, but also Christ is angry and the Father's angry? You know, I think we have this view sometimes of the Father as a sort of rash, jealous, like smithy sort of figure, um, and we read kind of some of these Old Testament passages along those lines. But I think if we look into the instances in which we see the Father and Christ angry, we'll see that it actually doesn't really fit that pattern. So we'll start with uh, the cleansing of the temple. This is in John 2, verses 13 through 17. The Passover of the Jews was near, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and the money changers seated at their tables. Making a whip of cords, so like a whip, he drove all of them out of the temple, and the sheep and the cattle. He also poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. He told those who were selling the doves, take these things out of here. Stop making my father's house a marketplace. His disciples remembered it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Now, it doesn't, strictly speaking, say that Jesus is angry here, but I'm willing to wager that is, in fact, what's going on. And there's precedent for that in the Old Testament, right? So if you look at Exodus 4, this is just before, uh, 16 chapters before the Ten Commandments. The Lord has selected Moses as the person to lead the Israelites out of Egypt, and Moses keeps trying to, like, dodge the command, right? And so he's trying to give excuses. Exodus 4, verse 10, Moses said to the Lord, Oh, my Lord, I've never been eloquent neither in the past nor even now that you've spoken to your servant. But I'm slow of speech and slow of tongue. And then the Lord said to him, who gives speech to mortals? Who makes them mute or deaf, seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you are to speak. But he said, that is Moses, oh my Lord, please send someone else. And then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. So here we have two instances where it seems like anger is portrayed as something good, right? Insofar as the father, insofar as the son are exhibiting this anger, it is something that is holy and just and righteous. We know that, but how exactly then does that fit with what Christ is saying in the Sermon on the Mount, that we ought not hold anger in our hearts against our brother or sister? What is the feature or features, set of features, that we could derive and understand what good anger is, holy anger, from the sort of anger that we are not supposed to hold in our hearts. Well, I think we see a couple things in these passages. One is this, that the anger always comes out of a desire to protect and care for something that's really, truly valuable, to honor that which is sacred. So in the case of the cleansing of the temple, John 2, this is the Father's house. This is something that is sacred, and this is something that they've made into just a marketplace. And it's not just the case that it's a sin because it disrespects the Father. It's also the case that the temple is good for the people. It's good for Israel. That is their place of worship. That is the place that they commune with the Father. And even 
much more of a strictly speaking way than we do today in this sort of church context. And in the way in which they made this a marketplace, right, we see what is sacred being made, what is profane. And in virtue then of love both for the people and love for God, Christ drives the money changers out of the temple. Which is to say that that anger is co-equal and happens at the exact same time as love. The anger is actually a manifestation of love. And we see the same thing, I think, in Exodus 4. When Moses says, you know, Lord, that, that job's not really for me. He's effectively making himself above the Father, right? He's saying, you, the Father, have given me this command, and you're supposed to be omniscient, omnipotent, and benevolent, and you've told me what to do, but I, I think I know better. I'm actually not the guy for the job. Moses is in this way putting himself above the Lord. And of course, in the same way, that is a sin against the Father. But it's also the case that if this line we've been charting in our sermon series on the Ten Commandments, that the Ten Commandments are sort of like an instruction manual for the human machine. Following God's commands are what make us, as humans, run well. If that's the case, then God's commands are also good for us. And Part of the Lord's anger against Moses is in virtue of his love for Moses, that he wants Moses to do what's good for him, follow the commandments of the Lord. So I think this is one way in which we can start to understand the way in which anger is, is good and justified if and when it's a manifestation of love. It's both evidence of our love and a motivator toward action, toward loving action. But that's not to say anger doesn't go wrong. It of course goes wrong all the time. Uh, for me, I think of just kind of like my foundational experience with anger. It actually happened when I was a toddler, and this is one of my core memories. I remember it pretty well. So I'm like three, two or three, and I'm a bit of a climber as a kid. And when I wake up in the middle of the night, I like to kind of climb the gate that my parents set up in front of my room in order to get to their room. Um, my parents, of course, are trying to kick this habit, and so they're trying gates left and right with like different slots, but I can always find a way to like put my fingers and toes in the slots and, and climb over until one day, it's like, 1.30 a.m., the dead of night, I wake up, I open my door, and there's not only one gate, but two gates. And both gates have only vertical slats. There's no little place for me to put my fingers and my toes, and I go ballistic. I, I can't get out of the room, so I start taking out my anger on everything left and right, pillows, chairs, my clothes, whatever. I pile into a huge um, heap in the center of the room. I quite literally remember this, like, seeing red. And meanwhile, my parents are like listening on the baby monitor, like wondering what the heck is going on in, in this room. Uh, but I didn't have a place to take out my anger, and so I took it out on anything that was available to me. This is one way in which anger can go bad, right? You lose control, you lose your temper. Let's look at James 1, verses 19 to 20. You must understand this, my beloved brothers and sisters. Let everyone be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For human anger does not produce God's righteousness. So here we see there's, there's a human anger, and that does not lead to God's righteousness, but there's also, as we've seen, a holy anger, something that is good and just. One way, then, in which anger can go wrong is when you are quick to anger. And maybe you're angry at the wrong things, at the wrong times, right? So if you lose control, you start taking out your anger, like your boss was really mean to you on a, on a given day, you can't take out your anger on your boss because then they'll fire you. But then you get home and then you see your roommate and you're just looking for something to be upset about, right? Uh, you walk in the room and like one dish is out of the place and all of a sudden you explode. You take out your anger from one place and put it in another. You're getting angry too often. Or maybe if you value the wrong sorts of things, uh, so say you've, you've kind of made yourself into your God, 
so to speak, where you're the, you know you're the most important around. And so anything that minorly inconveniences you is a source of anger. So like, if I'm the most important person in the world, then when I'm in my grocery store checkout line and the person in front of me is like slowly bringing out their coupons and they're like trying to chat up the cashier and I'm just trying to go because I got somewhere to be, I'm gonna get upset, I'm gonna get angry if I think I'm the most important person in the world, right? That everything really is supposed to revolve around me. There's ways in which valuing the wrong things can lead you to be angry at the wrong times and at the wrong things. And this sort of bad anger, I think, is oftentimes not fueled by love, it's fueled by hate, disdain, indignation even. And I think this sort of like losing your temper, losing control, is what we normally think of when we think of anger and the way in which it, it can be bad. But I don't actually think it's the most insidious form of anger for us as modern people. I think the more insidious form of anger is a little bit different and a little bit more prominent and a little trickier to pin down. Let's take a look at Ephesians 4, verses 25 to 26. So then, putting away falsehood, let each of you speak the truth with your neighbor. For we are members of one another. Be angry, but do not sin. So we have an affirmation of good anger there. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. and Do not make room for the devil. So what does it mean to not let the sun go down on your anger? And why exactly is that something Paul wants to prohibit? So let's imagine the case we were just in, right? Your boss is mean to you on a given day, they're rude, they're selfish, they have unrealistic expectations of you. But in the moment, you're of course meek. You say like, yeah, sure, I'll do that. You are angry, but you hold your temper down. You're in control. And then you go about your day. Seems like we've done the commandment, we're good. But then think a few hours later, you're running back through this situation in your mind. You start to dwell on how rude they are, how selfish they are, how unrealistic their expectations are. You start imagining what you should have said or should have done in the moment, what you'd like to see happen to them, right? You don't take actual revenge on them in the world, you start to take imaginative revenge on them. It just happens all within the bounds of your head. This is an attitude I might want to call resentment, as opposed to like a temper tantrum. This is a different form of losing control. So there's a sort of inward turn and this is the sort of turn that makes a heart, like home in your heart over time. This is letting the sun go down on your anger. Because you didn't have an outlet for that anger. You didn't explode in the moment. And in fact, you're just dwelling on it again and again. So even days, weeks, months later, you can think about this person or this interaction and you can still feel that resentment. It's made a home in your heart. And it starts to direct your thoughts and feelings toward that person. And in the moment, the quiet moments at night, that's what you can return to. And it just pops in your head again and again. I think resentment is a particularly pernicious attitude for us to have and a difficult one to really pin down. There's a couple reasons it might be bad. One is this, um, it prevents you from loving your enemy. This is a kind of a straightforward thing that Christ commands us to do, but that angle is not my focus today. What I want to focus on today is more actually the way in which resentment poisons our souls, the people who harbor that resentment. Ephesians 4.26 says that this makes room for the devil. In what way? Well, one is this, that resentment operates on the following lie, that when someone wrongs you, offends you, and let's assume they genuinely have, they have wronged you. When someone offends you, it feels like your happiness, your joy, your fulfillment has been taken from you. Your day was supposed to go one way and then it went poorly. There's something you deserved that should have been due to you and then it is taken away from you, it's robbed. Such that your happiness, your joy, your fulfillment is no longer out of reach. It's dependent on the way another person acts. But part of, I think, 
The promise of the New Testament is this, that your happiness, joy, and fulfillment is not dependent on how anyone treats you on a day-to-day -day basis. It's actually dependent on just on how Christ acted 2,000 years ago. That's the source of happiness, joy, and fulfillment that is eternable, that is eternal, that is unchangeable, that can never be taken away from you. And in this moment, right, when you're operating under this lie, your focus and attention starts to be not on Christ's ultimate promise to you, but rather on the ways in which you've been wronged in a particular moment. And so your focus and attention is always on evil, on sin, on the way you've been wronged. Your time and energy is directed then towards what doesn't build you up, but rather what is evil. But let's look at Philippians 4.8. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is pleasing, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, and if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things, right? That's the polar opposite way resentment trains you to think. It's not to think about those things, whatever's pure and good and just, but rather to think about sin, to dwell on evil, to dwell on the ways in which you've been wronged. It pushes you not towards love, towards the Lord, but for whatever reason, your focus is now on sin. And as you start to dwell on the ways in which people have wronged you, I think it's really easy for us to start to hold grudges. So one thing that we affirm here as Church of the Beloved in our members' covenant is that here's just a feature of what it is to be in community, is that people are going to fail you. You're going to fail them, but people are going to fail you. That's just the nature of human community. And if resentment starts to make a home in your heart and in your soul, then every time someone fails you and you dwell on it and you continue dwelling on it, you start to resent them. And that kind of prevents the possibility of real vulnerability with the person, real community with the person, real connection with them. And so resentment can start to isolate you because you're holding these grudges, you're viewing yourself as in some sense superior to other people, they have failed you. You make yourself the judge, that they're not worthy of your time or attention. And there's a sort of pleasure we can take in this because we get to feel powerful, we get to make the judgment. But in letting resentment into your heart and letting it isolate you from people around you, you kind of prevent the possibility of real community often. It pushes you towards loneliness. So you get to feel like the judge, you get to feel powerful, but to take a phrase from Foster Wallace, it's only of a tiny little skull-sized kingdom. You become alone at the center of all creation. And you might think in that, in that moment, resentment has finally done its work, but there's actually still one place for resentment to look, to get its claws into. Even when you're alone, resentment can turn against yourself. It can feed shame. And I think many of us have these sort of instances when we have a moment to ourselves, when we're not busy, we're not distracted, and we're just like trying to fall asleep, and we think back to like something terrible that we did years ago, and we think like, why did we do that? For me, this is first grade. Uh, I think about, <laughs> truly, I, this is, I think about this to this day. It was easy to come up with. Uh, I went to church with a friend of mine, Dakota. Dakota was also in first grade. He um, kind of went to church periodically, but wasn't super involved. And we were in the children's ministry. Um, so we'd gone off to our separate, separate area of church. And this was like the area, area in evangelicalism where we were doing the hand motions. I don't know how many of you grew up in this tradition, right? But it was like, you know, from the cross to the grave, from the grave to the sky, that sort of situation. Uh, and they would always ask for volunteers to lead all the motions. And so I, I thought it would be really funny if I could get Dakota up there to like volunteer to lead. Uh, I don't know why I thought this, but I did. I thought it'd be really funny if I got Dakota volunteer to lead. And he was like, I don't really know if I want to do that. And I'm like, no man, do it, do it, do it. And so he raises his hand and immediately I feel just this stone in my stomach. Cause he goes down there and he's embarrassed. He doesn't know what he's doing. 
And I feel terrible about it. Like, it was just so mean in its basic form. I was just getting someone to do something that was uncomfortable, that would embarrass them for my own pleasure. And I didn't actually even enjoy it. It's this horrible thing I did. And I still think about it now, like, you know, 20-some years after the fact. <laughs> so I did this thing, and I, I, it's a terrible thing. But resentment, when you start dwelling on it too much, when you start focusing on it, it's not a bad thing that you did, a sin you committed. You start to be convinced that you yourself are bad, that you yourself are, at your core, not worthy. It feeds shame in this way. And I think Paul has a way of analyzing our own sins that is a little healthier. And I think this is the Christian picture on how we ought to relate. Let's look at Romans 7, verses 15 to 19. Paul says this, I don't understand my own actions. For I don't do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree, the law is good. But in fact, it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that the good does not dwell within me, that is, in my flesh. For the desire to do good lies close at hand, but not the ability. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I do. And it's easy to skim by, but I think what Paul's saying here is kind of remarkable. That there's a way, as Christians, that we can analyze our own lives where we are not our sin. The sin dwells within us, and we do sin, we do fail people. But ultimately, what God sees when God looks at us is Christ. Because of Christ's work, we are not defined by our sin. We're defined by Christ instead. That it's supposed to be a, a, a division where shame can no longer grow in our souls in virtue of Christ. But resentment always pushes us to focus on that, to feel shame, to feel alone, to focus on evil, to operate under this lie that our fulfillment is dependent on the way people around us treat us. So I think, in summary, part of why Christ doesn't want us to hold anger in our hearts, why Paul suggests that we ought not let the sun go down on our anger, is because, to connect it back to Exodus, the person we end up murdering is just as often ourselves. Resentment, as the quote goes, is like swallowing poison and expecting the other person to die. Uh, we tried to, Derek uh, pointed me towards this uh, quote, and we tried to track down the source of it. It's kind of an odd cast. It might have been Leia from Star Wars, Carrie Fisher, who said this, uh, or it could have been Augustine of Hippo or maybe Nelson Mandela. <laughs> Unclear exactly, but I think the point stands. It gets the idea across, right, that resentment is just bad for you, the resenter. It's like drinking poison, and it's a really difficult poison to get rid of. The antidote's kind of unclear. I think part of the reason it's so difficult to get rid of is that Society, media especially, culture, really likes us to feel resentful. This is in part because they found out through psychology, there's this thing called negativity bias. I don't know how many of you are familiar with it. But the idea is basically that we as human beings are generally hardwired to respond more intensely and severely to negative stimuli than positive stimuli. So on the one hand, they show this with like brain scans, if they show people some, a negative image versus a positive one. But also media companies, I think, have found out that actually the more negative stimuli they present in terms of news, in terms of social media, the more engagement they generate. And so there's actually kind of an economic incentive for companies like this to try to get us to feel resentful. And I don't think it takes a genius to figure this out if you turn on the news or, or look at, at the feed. It's negative stuff, left and right. Resentment, growing resentment in our souls is a way of making profit for a lot of, of companies today. So there's an economic incentive from just kind of the world to make us feel resentful, but also I think and maybe this is a way in which um, it's even a more way in which resentment hides, is that it hides under the guise of the good. 
which is to say, oftentimes we correctly identify an injustice, something we care about, something that is wrong that we should feel holy and righteous anger about. We correctly identify that, but then as time goes on, that righteous anger slowly and subtly morphs to be a form of resentment. Right? So you can be resentful of the uber-rich taking from the poor, and that's a correct identification of something that's unjust, unjust. But when we're resentful, as opposed to motivated by love, we find our focus and attention is actually always on the oppressor, how evil they are, how horrible that politician or that company or that person is. And what actually falls out of the picture, if you notice, is the oppressed, the victim, the person we're supposed to be loving. But we never think about that. We actually only think about the evil person. That's a sign, I think, that we're motivated by resentment not holy and righteous anger, the one that's supposed to be motivated by love. And of course, it is the case that love is the answer, right? Uh, that we're supposed to love our enemy, but that's a really difficult thing to do. How is it that this person who has wronged us, that we resent, how is it that we can transform that resentment into love? I think in this context, the best attitude to cultivate for us is one that's maybe the exact opposite of resentment, um, gratitude is in many ways the polar opposite of resentment. So, right, so resentment focuses on the way in which someone has wronged you, taken something from you that you deserved. Gratitude is when you've been benefited by someone in a way that you did not deserve. Gratitude and resentment in this way are exact opposite attitudes towards the world. And I think as Christians, we do have a source of eternal, unchangeable gratitude. And this could be our foundation. So look at 1 Thessalonians 5.18. Paul says this, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Which is to say, you can, in every moment, even when you are wronged, give thanks. Why? Because of what Christ has done. You always have a source of gratitude within you. But that doesn't always get us the whole way. Perhaps it should. But when there's someone in front of us who we resent, that particular person, I might encourage us to try this exercise. Is try, instead of focusing on the ways in which they have wronged you, try think about the ways in which that person has benefited you. And sometimes that requires being creative. Uh, it requires looking for ways in which you've been benefited or shifting your perspective. Like not so much what did that person do to me, but maybe who's the person I've become as a result of my interactions with this per person? What ways have I grown? Thinking back to Derek's sermon last week, many of us have had lots of bad experiences with our parents. But there's also a sense in which, at the very least, oftentimes they put food on the table. That's a thing to be grateful for. It requires a shift in perspective. And again, my idea here, and I want to go ahead and invite the band up um, back on stage. My idea here is not that you're supposed to do this because the offender, the person who's harmed you, in some sense deserves it. My idea here is that it's just because it's good for your soul. That resentment is a poison that's going to lead you to focus on evil, to feel lonely, to feel isolated. And gratitude is the medicine for that poison. It's a remarkable claim that we ought to give thanks in all circumstances. It's a strong claim. But I think if we do so, if we focus on cultivating gratitude in our souls, our souls will thank us. Let's pray. Thanks for tuning into this week's COTB Sermon Podcast. For more info or to connect with us online, you can find us at cotb.life.